This is Sacrilegious with your host, Gary Latterman. We are back again, and I am so glad to be back, uh, especially because of the guest that uh, we have today. Thrilled and excited to have Deepak Sarma here, professor of Indian religions and philosophy at Case Western Reserve University. He is the author of many books and many writings and teaches on a vast array of topics. Also, uh, he works uh, very much in, in, in a more public scholarship frame where he's a consultant uh, at various corporations, businesses, and uh, he's uh, also very involved with um, museums and has served as a curator. So the, the experience uh, that Deepak has uh, as a professor of religion and then beyond is um, uh, something that I'm, I'm very impressed with and uh, aspire to achieve. So it's, it's uh, really great. Also, he's a great friend and has uh, come into my class a couple of times. So it's, uh, it's fantastic to have you with me, Deepak. Uh, thank you very much, Gary. I'm really excited to be here. You, uh, you, it would, it, it'll, it might surprise you to hear, but you really have changed my academic trajectory. Uh-oh. So, right. <laughs> so I think that when, when I, you published the article I wrote about the Grateful Dead and the, their first album cover in, um, in your online journal, uh, then I kind of finally came out in an interesting way. And since then, I have been doing a lot of different work involving issues about psychedelics, about drug-induced mystical experiences, about the Grateful Dead, and about uh, Hinduism in India and even the appropriation of kind of Indian uh, episteme or ways of thinking uh, in that late 60s, early 70s world and what's come of it. So uh, you're really partly to blame here. Oh, man, that makes me extremely uh, happy. <laughs> I want to love it when I'm to blame uh, for something that, uh, uh, well, I, I, you know, I, I love what you're doing, as, as I've said. And, um, yeah, that first, uh, that's how we got to know each other was through that article. Um, it's called A Long Strange Trip, exploring how Yoga Narsima landed on the Grateful Dead's first album cover. hope I got that right. Uh, right. Yeah. So, yeah, say a little bit about that album cover and, and uh, how, how that happened. And, and oh, sure. It was just simply uh, wonderful experiences that if you look at the, the image on the, uh, on the first album of The Grateful Dead, there's an image of the Hindu god Narasimha. And um, though right. very few deadheads know this. And there's all kinds of speculation about who it was or who it might be. And it, it's really a hilarious speculation about how it connected with the whole um, ethos of the Grateful Dead. And we have uh, various um, uh, characterizations, including the, you know, the creature from the Black Lagoon and so on. And um, I did some uh, research about how that image came about to be on the cover. And it, 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 I was able to get somewhat far not quite as far as I'd hoped. Um, and as I, 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 I was reminded is that many of the people who were part of that world and who helped make that album cover are, are either dead or they were just on so many drugs at the time that they don't really have a good memory of why things came about that way. But it turns out that this is an image of the god Narasimha that, was, uh, that is now found in the, the Nelson Atkin Museum in Kansas City. 
And it was picked likely because of that kind of growing interest in the mid-60s in San Francisco in things non-Western. And so the artists, um, uh, uh, Mouse and, and Keeley, both of them were exploring those areas and there are stories about them going to the library in San Francisco and just picking out books that had images of Asian, so to speak, images. And lots of different ones caught their eye. And it's possible that this image caught their eye, though it is more than likely that somebody took this picture and gave it to them. Um, they didn't find it in a, in, a, in a magazine or anything like that. There's no record of this, of this image being uh, printed or published in a magazine. So in any event, uh, some of my research uh, helped uh, locate the, the, or trace the uh, location of where the, the image was. It was in Kansas City. It moved to Cleveland. And I was a man who was on tour, so to speak. <laughs> on tour with the dead. Um, and I, and one uh, was trying to figure out, you know, when and who might've taken that picture, but it uh, came as quite a surprise for many deadheads who don't really know very much about the, the Asian and especially Indian origins of some of the ethos and some of the practices and so on that you find in the late sixties, early seventies. So you have this really interesting group and community who have appropriated with the best of intentions, but are largely clueless about any of the history. And it's, it's, they've just embraced it as their own, but they're largely clueless about it. Well, that, let's talk about that for a second. I think that's, that's uh, fascinating and very much um, a fairly common reality in the history of religions in terms of those kinds of appropriations and reinterpretations um, that can happen with various um, symbols um, and icons and so on. And so this, yeah, I mean, this becomes for the Grateful Dead and for the 60s a really kind of iconic image that is utterly divorced from, uh, as you say, sort of cultural context and that uh, on the one hand, seems, you know, somehow like a, a real um, a problem, you know, that there, there's some kind of knowledge missing that can give more meaning to this and um, help people see some of the more uh, global connections. On the other hand, it's also, you know, becomes, as you say, part of the, the, the repertoire of, of images that really begin to explode and create new religious kinds of cultures that uh, begin to have their own uh, sort of context and uh, sources of knowledge for how they understand, you know, what's happening in the world in the 60s and 70s. And yeah, so this is something that sits right at the center of that to some degree. And uh, it, it does. It does. And I was thinking that in particular, it, it's there's an interesting relationship between the kind of cognitive states that people were achieving at that time period, taking LSD, and, and they're trying to understand and interpret it, and their reliance on similar characterizations or references that you find in Buddhism and in different schools of Indian philosophy. And even more interestingly is that some of the the early precursors of, of psychedelic kind of drug use, think about somebody like Aldous Huxley, is that they too 
did some work and were exposed to things Indian. Huxley, uh, above all, after all, he wrote his Brave New World and he titled his drug Soma, which is in reference to this Vedic drug that people supposedly did that some people have speculated was cannabis, which I don't think it was. Others have speculated that it was psilocybin, which I don't think it was. And still others have speculated that it's some version of DMT, which seems more likely. No, that's where, you're, so, land, that's where you're landing there. That's where I'm landing yeah, on this. Okay. <laughs> right. And so, so people like Huxley are, are, are looking at, at these things and integrating kind of Hinduism into their worldview and their own kind of perennialism. I was really excited to discover that, that the Grateful Dead had a, a relationship with Joseph Campbell. And uh, he attended a, conf- a concert and was invited to dinner a couple of times and so on. And Campbell, whose philosophy the dead and many, many people of that era really embraced, Campbell was exposed to uh, Hinduism via Krishnamurti in 1918, and Krishnamurti was at that time the president of the Theosophical Society. So you have this hilarious Mm. link, not to mention there's another professor, Zimmer, who's a Sanskritist, and he became tight with, with Campbell in like the late 50s. He died, and Campbell edited Zimmer's books after he died posthumously and, and published them. So so it's interesting to see these early links with Hinduism and Indian philosophy, and then the dead and their world uh, uh, kind of embraces it. Um, so it's it's a very I'm discovering more things like this. Oh yeah, no, and and um, you see it for sure in various uh, ways in popular culture, thinking whatever dead and Beatles and so on, um, and just where that that influence then, you know, uh, really begins to hit and, and, and change things. But also, as we're just reading and, and, and trying to remember back to uh, my undergraduate days when I was reading some of the stuff like Fritzhoff Capra, The Turning Point, and the ways in which, you know, science and the new physics, quantum physics, begins to look and, well, and use, utilize the language of, of, of so-called Eastern religions to get a right. better sense of these new discoveries and... You know, it's a very, um, it's like, yeah, sort of welcome to American religion, you know, it's just all these um, appropriations, right. uh, language games and ways in which religion and the boundaries of religion just get, get blown apart, I think, in, in, right. in this Absolutely. period. And then we have what we have today in these new religious movements where you have all of these kinds of enormous diversity with a, with, with a sprinkling of perennialism or a kind of complicated Unitarianism somewhere in there, you know, and add to this, this belief of that, um, not quite narcissism, but a belief that people have the capacity to be seers and prophets themselves on their own, independently of religious, you know, uh, religious institutions, which is wonderful, really. It's an incredible empowerment. I celebrate it. Uh, you know, I think it's uh, you know fantastic in so many ways. I don't I, you know, often will get asked if this if this is a sign of, of uh, end times or how religion <laughs> has been corrupted or you know it's is somehow you know diminishing in, in influence and it's just such a whole reinvigoration in many ways. I mean, even though the whole individual sort of effort and interest and investment and in sort of notions of wellness well-being, sacred ideas about health are, are parcel of a larger cultural 
a pattern. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, where, where these uh, the former institutional structures and strictures no longer are, are holding people in so much. No, they are definitely not holding people in. But you actually have now more, uh, like an increase, it's an irony that there's an increase in charismatic figures who have created their own sort of institutions, but part of their institution is the denial that there are any institutions at all. Um, and we see all these documentaries in the last couple of years of some of these charismatic figures who have gone awry and who've exploited in ways that have seemed to follow the pattern of religious institutions of, uh, in the past. So you, you have a peculiar hypocrisy or blindness that people have when they're buying into an institution uh, but they are still in denial that they're buying into it. Right. Who are you uh, thinking about? Are you thinking about like celebrities or something or more like oh, uh, cult uh, figures of some kind, so, so to I speak? Thinking, I was thinking, I mean, somebody like Deepak Chopra, for example, a cult figure for sure. Um, but we could also say that uh, the many different yoga, charismatic yoga leaders who end up sleeping with their students or what have you. Um, uh, and, and then you have... Um, uh, Gwyneth Paltrow, who is who's doing something like that too, right? So you have this peculiar cult of personality combined with this charismatic capacity, and then you throw health and wellness into this, and 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 you've got this all of these things tied together beautifully. <laughs> Religion, it's a spirituality. It certainly is, comes uh, in some ways as it's expressed in those in those terms, if, if explicitly, if yes. not implicitly. That's right. Um, I'm struck, too, that when we think about, you know, early American mesmerism and things like this, that people are doing these tricks of the trade, one could call, is that TikTok and Instagram has made that even more possible because you can take your image and modify it any way. So and, and so you can show how charismatic you are or how healthy you are even if you're not at all, simply by slimming yourself down and adding some abs or pecs or whatever. Right. I like that. Yeah, with the ways in which uh, social media are really amplifying certain deeper-rooted American religious traits around the self, notions of the self, individualism, <laughs> you know, and, uh, yeah, the sort of uh, sense of, of real importance of, of the personal narrative as well as right. appearance. Uh, right. And, and there's an interesting confusion about the kind of rugged individualism sensibility. And then you have these charismatic figures who are flying, you know, have images of themselves flying first class and so on, where they're actually really rather luxurious and they're not much like a rugged individualist at all. No. But, but, but they still have made it out on their own. Well, right? and <laughs> not just made it, but, uh, you know, just in the, the highest echelons of, right. of capitalism and money making and profit and um, living, you know, uh, the life. The life. This is the, yeah, I mean, the, the, I, more than uh, preachers or rabbis, I think, you know, you, people uh, really want to again, aspire, you know, to, to have that kind of money and that kind of lifestyle and think, again, that's an expression of their own individualism that's right. that's tied into again, these larger uh, uh, forces, but that are also very much a part of of um, American history. Absolutely. And another irony is that, that, that there's a desire to, to, uh, to, to rethink the self and despite being so embracing the self as, as, as for everything it's worth. Yeah. Literally and figuratively. 
Well, right, and you've you've had you've talked a bit about the notions of the self in terms of your your own uh, journey, I think, and and how you know kind of in, in terms of your own intellectual journey. Maybe you can say a little bit about about how how your ideas of the self have changed. You know, in terms of, of course, your background, as you've been saying, is in Hindu philosophy and history, and so you know that's obviously where your your core training has been. But you, there's been so you know you have so many of these other great interests and and <laughs> insights. So I'm curious. Hi. So, um, so, so the, co the construction of the self. So if we go backwards now from where I am right now is that I tend now to embrace a kind of Mahayana Buddhist constructivist position that myself is no more than this pure construction. And that in fact, there is no Deepak here and that Deepak is, is, is in conventional reality. It might seem that way, but ultimately there is no such Deepak, uh, and that we err when we think that there is such a thing. I really tend to like the constructivist or put it as a, like the Yogacara Buddhist where things are mind only position, which ties in, of course, to the kinds of things and behaviors I was engaging in when I was in college, let's just say, uh, that inspired my curiosity about drug induced mystical experiences. Um, and, and, and since then, or between then and now, there have been different times when I've had to more or less jettison this idea of a bi-level epistemology where there's a real and the real behind the real and embrace a more um, conventional sense that there actually is a self. <laughs> and when I think my, my study of the Dwaita school of Vedanta, which is what I did my dissertation on, which is a kind of classic sort of theism, and even more importantly, explicitly makes arguments against the non-dual school of Vedanta, which has a bi-level epistemology that's very similar to Mahayana Buddhism, that there is um, ultimately everything is Brahman, according to the Advaitins, and that any idea that you have a self is an error, and that ultimately you will, once you realize that you don't have a self, then you merge with Brahman, which is really very similar to the Buddhist position that you obtain nirvana and without the ontology though of Brahman, is that you, you don't merge with every, anything when you're in nirvana. Um, in any way, the Dwaita school argues against that position. So I spent a great deal of my graduate and postgraduate life making arguments against a position that was probably something that I, 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 I embraced <laughs> more so than the Dwaita school. Uh, and I'm sure that um, I was good at it, for sure. So there's some, uh, uh, maybe the, 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 the word of the day is irony, but there was definitely an irony that I became an expert in a school of realism despite being so, uh, uh, having such a proclivity towards idealism. Um, so the self, my, my, my sense of self has varied in these many different ways. And I should say, Gary, that, that this, this realization that the self is so malleable is, 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 has allowed me and permitted me to expand my, my intellectual horizons in the many different ways that I have. And so I'm not attached to Deepak Sharma's scholar of Vedanta. And so if a new opportunity or a new interesting opportunity comes along, it's not, it's easy for me to reinvent myself, so to speak, and put on a new hat and explore a new area. Uh, and I've done that now in so many different ways. Uh, it's uh, been um, indulgent in the most extreme way, I'm sure. That is wonderful, though, to be able to do that. 
But go ahead. I, yeah. I, I should add, Gary, and I, I don't I don't know if we've spoken about this, but here we go. Is that in 1995 I had this head injury? Have I spoken to you about this head injury a little bit? Well, yeah, but I want to hear again. Hear it again. In 1995, I was a, a rock climber, and I had just finished taking my PhD exams, and I just turned in my proposal and became ABD. And I went out to uh, to Bend, Oregon. In fact, it was even funnier than that. I went out to uh, to marry uh, some friends of mine. My friends were getting married in Oregon. And I was going to be the you know the priest for the for the ceremony. And I went to um, Smith Rock to, I was an avid rock climber in those days. And I was at Smith Rock, it was 1995 in May. And I had a buddy who was, um, who, who ran logistics for Outward Bound there. So we crafted the Outward Bound camp and then took a car and went over to Smith Rock. And we climbed and I was getting better at it. I was super lightweight, so it was easy for me to climb. I think I was about 85 89 pounds. I was really easy to climb. I was lead climbing a, it was an overhang with a crack and I was lead climbing it. And, um, uh, I, I, you know, I, this is so I'm told really. So as I was lead climbing it, I probably went up about 15 feet or 20 feet. And I uh, found a space that I, I found an area that I couldn't really traverse well. So I traversed, uh, to the side and I was clipped in and I was about 10 feet above where I was clipped in. And I don't, I'm so I'm told I fell and I swung down into like a pendulum. And in the process, I smacked the back of my head against a rock that was, that was nearby. I wasn't wearing a helmet, of course, and I broke my skull. So, so I'm told, so I broke my skull. I was, you know, uh, they, they lowered me down and cause I was still dangling and I was bleeding pink blood out of my nose and my ears, which is a sign that you've broken your skull and you've got brain damage. And, um, this is all pre cell phone, right? So the girlfriend that I had at that time, um, who's now, uh, you know, a professor at, uh, uh to, to her credit, she ran up onto the plateau and ran to find the nearest payphone and call 911. On the way, she ran into um, some uh, some climbers who turned out that, that a week before there had been a head injury course that they had taken. So they were all excellent at you know helping somebody with head injury. And they were like, this guy's got a head injury. And she ran and called 911. And these climbers came and rallied forth three or four other climbers maybe. And they, 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 they stabilized me in whatever way they could. And, um, I think an ambulance came and the ambulance, they realized they couldn't raise me. Uh, I was in like a, in a, like a ravine, let's put it that way. And they couldn't raise me. Right. So they had to get a helicopter that was further down the ravine by, by, a by a water, by, by the a river. And they had to lower me down. Um, and apparently all these climbers put together their ropes and they put me on like one of those sleds and then they lowered me down. I don't remember any of it, of course. So when I came to, which was a few days afterwards, at least I don't, I don't remember how long it was. I didn't know where I was, who I was, what I did. And I had this amnesia, right? I had this fiction in my head that I had woken up in a hotel and I was cold and I 
woke up and I looked around and there was no door. And I was like, this is the weirdest hotel I've ever been in. And I went outside and I found somebody who I thought worked in the hotel. And I said, hey, can I get a blanket? I'm kind of cold. You know, where am I? And they were like, you know, have you seen my girlfriend? I knew that much. And they told me I was in a hospital and I was, didn't believe them. <laughs> and I went way back down. And I re vaguely remember the next morning that I, a doctor came in and told me that, yes, you're in the hospital, you've had a head injury. And they showed me my glasses, which had like blood all over them. So this was, I thought, well, and my head hurt, right? So I was like, my head hurt. So I had this very bad head injury. I had a contra coup head injury, which means that if you take a glass of water and you shake it back and forth and the water goes back and forth, um, that's what happened to my brain. So I hit the back of my head and um, you would think then that the majority of the brain damage was in the back of my head, but it was actually in the front of my head because the brain jiggles like this. So I lost my sense of taste and smell. I lost some of my inhibitions and I certainly lost um, my, I didn't know who I was and I had to be told who I was, uh, which was very interesting to not know who I was. I, I call this the death of the self or the death of the personality. And after that, I had to learn how to walk a little bit. I was, you know, I would veer to the left and things like that. And so I had a lot of, um, a lot of physical therapy. I recall that, that I think my girlfriend at the time, she wanted to make sure that she had some say over my, my medical treatment. So she told the people at the hospital that she was my fiance. And that was really funny because they told me, oh, your fiance is here. And I was like, oh, I have a fiance. Let me see who she is. <laughs> it's so funny. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure she didn't think it was that funny. But I needed 24-hour supervision after that. My parents happened to be in India at the time. And they got a call from some chain of command that their son was dead and they should come collect his body. And then it became that, oh, he's sort of still alive. And... Um, you know, my dad was on sabbatical there and he had to cut his sabbatical short, get in a plane and come and get me in Oregon. The, 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 you know, the interesting thing about memory and, and reconstructing the personality is, is, and with head injuries is that there's a question, did you completely lose those memories? Did those, the connections to those memories get lost? Or, um, or as I have often wondered, did, did I lose those memories entirely and do people that I know who know my history uh, help me to reconstruct who they want me to be, right? So in the same way that if you take some, you know, 10-year-old kid and you show them a picture of when they were one, they have some memory of it, but it's really a memory of their parents telling them about it. So I wonder so much about how much of my memory has been reconstructed from looking at pictures and talking to other people and finding out that I was a PhD student and, oh, this is what I study. Oh, I supposedly I study the language Sanskrit and so on. And this process was especially clear in the context of learning how to taste things. Because I lost my, I not only lost my sense of taste and smell, but I lost my memory of taste and smell. So my mom, who was taking care of me at the time, I mean, I was 25 years old, but she got the chance to, to um, teach me again as if I was a small child. She would give me some food that I like, an orange. And she'd say, this is an orange. This is something that's good. It tastes good. And I would put it in my mouth and I would have sensations. And they were interesting. And I would have to say, okay, this is how an orange tastes. And in the same way that if you have, just like with your one-year-old or your two-year-old, you give them a new food and you say, this is what a banana is like. And they eat the banana. And they connect these ideas. This is how a banana tastes. This is how it smells. 
and mom says it's good. So that was a reconstruction of my taste and smell. So I certainly had that, I think, with my personality. Immediately after, I, or at least for two or three years afterwards, I showed signs of short-term memory loss, which is really interesting when you think about who you are and what yourself is, because, because you, I was continuously renewing myself because I didn't know what it, what, who I was or what, what was going on. I remember being in India and traveling in India six months or eight months after my head injury and not knowing always where I was going. And so I would be in a bus and I didn't know where I was going and I would try and figure it out. And then I would eventually start writing notes to myself such that I could pull over when I had my bike and look and see, you know, where I was supposed to be going or what, the, what was the purpose of that journey? Right? So it was, it made things kind of exciting for sure, but dangerous for sure too, right? Because, you know, you didn't know where you were going to end up. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's uh, an incredible story. And I imagine uh, retelling it and thinking about it in retrospect and looking back, you, you have uh, very different ways of understanding, you know, how it fits into your larger story. I was thinking, you know, obviously in terms of the intellectual trajectory and how, you know, that experience may or may not have impacted, you know, the direction that you were that you were going in, but um, also clearly, I, I don't know, on an existential level, it's, it must, I mean, this is, I, th I think you've referred to it as a near-death experience. It was a kind of, NDE. not NDE, I mean, death of the self in some ways, where you get to come back or you reinvent or however you, you understand right. that, but um, right. but that also just... Here was this, this, yeah. I mean, like you were up, up, up against it. You were right there with that, and I'm sure that has, has lived on with you too. Oh yes. Well, as soon as I, when I was in India and post head injury, like I said, I was really malleable, and I was doing work for my dissertation on a Fulbright, and I studied in the monastery, uh, the Madhva School of Vedanta, the Dwaita School, and the people there knew they could mold me, and I was malleable. So the time I was there, I sort of became very, not reactionary, it's not the right word, but I was, I was really, really devout, right? Because the people I was around were all devout and I, I was malleable and so devout was the way I went. Um, since then, I'm certainly not so devout, sacrilegious perhaps. Welcome. <laughs> but, <laughs> but since then, for sure, my curiosity about bi-level epistemologies where there's a real behind the real and what you're seeing right now that you can't be certain of has been confirmed, explained, more understood because of the head injury. So it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's, it gave me an interesting kind of epistemic confirmation of my complete epistemic doubt, let's say, right? So uh, I can't be sure of anything that much I can be sure of sort of, uh, because as I say, uh, I can't be sure that if, I've, that if I've ever come out of a coma, like maybe I'm still in a coma someplace, or maybe I'm dead, and this is what being dead is like. Right? I, I can't be sure of anything. Guest on sacrilegious. You're, you're as near <laughs> to death as you can be, I guess. Right. <laughs> Heaven or hell. And for sure, you know, I, I use that. that um, I rely on that quite frequently. So the stranger the experience I have, the easier it is for me to understand it as perhaps mine only, 
right? So uh, I put myself in, or if I find myself in, in a weird situation, it's not hard to embrace the idea that it could be all mind only or a figment of my imagination, one might say. Mm, mm, mm. Right. So uh, to be continued. Really. Well, right. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, again, I think it's, uh, yeah, it has, uh, I'm sure, an impact on all kinds of levels. But you've, you've, as you mentioned, have been able to wear a number of different hats and uh, be able to, you know, been able to see yourself in, in a number of different roles that in a sense, can break you out of the classroom or, you know, the confines of, a, of, a, of a, um, you know, a library or something. Um, right. But, you know, if I, I mean, you do some consulting with, uh, I, I said corporations. These are big media outlets. You, you uh, are a consultant with Netflix. That's you right. also Netflix. are a consultant with um, Hallmark, I think. Uh, um, with American uh, Greetings. Sorry, American Greetings. American Greetings and with Mattel. And right with Mattel. Now. So, yeah, I mean, please say, uh, just tell me a little bit about what's up with sure. some of that stuff. Sure, sure. I, I And and because I've signed so many non-disclosure agreements, I have to keep it somewhat abstract, right? Which is kind of funny is that, that until, so there are several projects I'm working with, with Mattel and one project with, sorry, several projects with Netflix and one project with Mattel. And um, to put it in the kind of the broadest sense is that, that, that I'm a cultural consultant for them, which means, what does that mean to be a cultural consultant? That means that, and you can guess that given my expertise in Hinduism and Indian philosophy, is that, that these are uh, projects that involve some, uh, and I should say they're animation projects okay. that involve Hinduism or India in some way, and the, 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 the people who are directing, writing, producing, all the people who are producing this want to make sure they get it right. And they want to make sure, most importantly, that they don't make themselves the target for um, Hindus who feel that they got it wrong or the Hindu right or the Indian government in India, which is currently a, a right-wing government, that would shut down these uh, streaming, uh, and you can see how this could happen, sure. right? So, so there's a broad sense of things and that involves, I've learned, it involves so many elements. It involves music, pronunciation, storylines, clothing lines, uh, even, uh, I mean, even plots for that matter, plots overall, but all kinds of details. Uh, it's an it's an amazing number of details, and an even more amazing number of people who are involved in making this happen. Um, so I just got um, you know a a a ten minute segment of one of the episodes that I uh, this morning, for example. And um, unlike the academic world, uh, they they want um, reactions due at the end of the day. So you have like you know you not got, six months. Not six months. And so I have to view the, the episode and take notes on different elements that are there that, that, that either uh, that I, I find interesting or more importantly, that if there are anything that is not culturally okay, right? And so that's what they're looking for is that the first thing I should do is send them a message saying that there are no cultural complexities or if there are, here they are, right? And they can take it or leave it. Sure. Um, but it's been a really exciting process, partly because I can see that eventually what the work I do and the knowledge I have is going to have an immediate effect. I mean, it's not so eventual, but it will be on Netflix. And it's kind of cool that I tweaked it this way or that way. 
Now, what's difficult when we think about method and theory in the study of religion is that, and particularly with Hinduism, is that I have to make and embrace some broad generalizations about Hindu practices. Right. Um, and I have to, I have to think. I mean, they don't want to know about the nuances as much as as we teach our students. Um, they want to know some of them. But finally, they need to be broad enough that they can accommodate as much as they can, but they still need to put the show on the on air. So I've had to do a little bit of work that has been um, uh, not I wouldn't say that it's not, I wouldn't say that it's gone against the kind of things that I teach, but it has made me think more like a public intellectual than like a, a esoteric scholar who thinks only about particular things. Sure. Um, it's been a lot of fun and, and made me rethink about who I am and Hinduism and my relationship with Hinduism for sure. And India for sure. But very, very interesting. Incredible. So those, go ahead. No, it's incredible. And it's, it's a kind of the, almost the ap- opposite of, you know, the notion of appropriation in a sense. It's really being overly concerned with making sure they're getting it right. right. And, and certainly with the prime motivation of, consumers, you know, of, of making right. sure that the markets are open and, and people are going to be happy. Right, and, that's right. And it's interesting to hear you talk about, you know, sort of how your academic, I mean, this is definitely about um, application. Uh, you right. know, people think yeah. in, the, in the ivory tower or the world of ideas that we supposedly inhabit, you know, it's got no, no application to the real world. And what you're doing is definitely, clearly, you know, it does. Right. One hundred percent. The the time that I did something like this in the past that was somewhat similar is that that I was I guess curated an, an exhibit at the Cleveland Museum of Art. Right. On the, it was a Collegott painting exhibit, and this was a really uh, lucky, fortunate sort of um, um, uh, trajectory. And the 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 the, the, the way that people the teams that work together to make the exhibit happen are have a very similar energy. Uh, uh, as do the teams in at Netflix that I've worked with. And the goal is to produce something that is consumed, that people attend and they like and they learn something and they're provoked in some ways and that, that they find interesting. And, and, and they can't be, at least in the museum setting, it can't be so sophisticated that, um, that the average person can't understand it. So you have to aim for it. So it's all about audience, right? So you have to aim for this audience. And it was really exciting to do at the museum. You had to, uh, as I said, be provocative in these ways. And, 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 and it was selling a product, a consumer, you know, a consume, a consumable product for sure. Yeah. Um, and, and it was without a doubt an application of the work that I've done. You know, in many ways, it's um, it's 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 more satisfying in many ways than the academic, simply because you you can see people are happy, they 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 respond, and it's 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 really pleasant when you know that that people are are enjoying this or learning from it. Um, I, I don't know what it'll be like with the Netflix work that I'm doing, but it was fun at the museum. I would occasionally go into the museum. And, you know, not let anybody know that I was the curator and I'd walk around and see what people say. And it was fun to see people part of this conversation and in, in learning from the materials and coming with their own interpretations, too. Right. So, you know, in the academic world is not like this at all. Academic world are, is um, academic nomads for the most part. It's a rare thing that you find somebody like I have found you, Gary, uh, where people collaborate and think 
uh, think as a team. And it's not that common, I think, in our academic world. Yeah, well, it's uh, yeah, there, are, there are many things that are that are different in the academic world, although, of course, there's a lot of, uh, you know, ways in which there's a great deal of interaction in the real world and, and academic world. But, you know, in terms of that, like, scene of you walking around the exhibit and not identifying yourself, but just interacting, it's like, we, we could never do that with students, right? <laughs> that's, that's there was like, a time, we, we can't you know, do that, you know, it's, it's a different a brief, way of relating. There was a brief time when I, when my hair wasn't so gray, that I, sit, I would sit down with the students before class began and, and the people thought I was a student and I would ask you if they knew who the professor was. <laughs> but that's about it. <laughs> yeah, well, right, exactly. So, uh, but it's, you know, I mean, again, it's the notion of translation, translating our knowledge, expertise, so-called expertise knowledge and, and whatever area we're in, in religion and, and you know, um, whether you see that in terms of religious literacy or public scholarship, there are ways in which when you do consider audience, you have to alter that translation and, you know, within the kind of academic standard world, uh, you know, it could be seen as compromise or, you know, right. somehow uh, avoiding the central nuances that must be a part of this knowledge. On the other hand, again, more public facing is they don't know shit. Uh, about most things religion um, and that's uh, you know um, an overstatement for sure but there's a way in which you, what we do is so isolated again I'm talking within the sort of religious studies world right from how people really live with religion in the real world in the outside world is uh, that's always been a, a big uh, motivating factor I think for me is trying to think and right. breaking out you know, of those the in, Indian community here doesn't always know what to do with me. Um, there was a time when I was a graduate student that the Indian community reached out to me and was really excited and supported me and asked me to speak and so on. And since then, the kind of worlds have changed significantly, these relationships between religious Hindus and scholarships, uh, scholarship in Hinduism. And um, now it's, it's um, antagonistic mm. rather than it was, uh, rather than it, in ways that it wasn't before. And so now you have Indian communities who are suspicious of scholars of Hinduism, suspicious of Hindu scholars of Hinduism. I think that, that Emery's, matter of fact, has had several scholars who've been targeted for that very reason. And it's it's a real pity. And since you know they were the first of, uh, among, I'm thinking of Paul Courtright, of course, he was among the first to be targeted. And once he was targeted, it changed the way that, that we could do work and that we can be public intellectuals, and certainly the way that we can interact with with Hindus in America or and Hindus in India. Um, and I haven't, you know, I don't know. Um, I haven't gone back since uh, in a few years. And the, the last time I was supposed to go back, I was supposed to give a talk at a conference at JNU. And um, uh, two days before I was supposed to fly out, the Indian government shut down the conference. And one of the reasons they came up with was that there were too many foreign scholars and I was to, I was the foreign scholar that they were talking about, right? And so for sure, uh, there's that peculiar um, devoicing that's occurring, which has made these kind of, the, the, the drive to be a public 
intellectual for Hinduism is very hard to do as, a, as an academic now. And I imagine you're not alone. I mean, there are certainly right. other you know, areas uh, where it's, it's volatile and, and we certainly have to acknowledge how conflicted and uh, politicized uh, the study of religion is. It's not just all fun and games, although that's what I aim for um, <laughs> as much as possible. But it's, uh, yeah, serious business, but, but also, as I said, volatile. And, 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 you know, yeah, my great dear friend Paul... Uh, been, uh, went through quite a bit, and as you said, he, he was—he's not alone in that sense. So Definitely the dangers not. are here as well, you know, to what you're doing, and uh, I think you know that adds a different element. Although I, I suppose being in the classroom has its dangers these days too. It does have its dangers. You know, it's funny you mentioned that. Is that with Zoom and Zoom recording, I would you know began to worry at some point that if students were going to be recording me and that. You know, I tend to be, uh, um, I curse a bunch in class. I say things somewhat flippantly. I have fun. Fucking A. Right, fucking A. That's yeah, great. And, you know, I didn't know if that was going to be used against me. And, you know, thankfully it hasn't yet. But maybe somebody's recorded something and it's sitting in some hard drive someplace. You've got to be careful. Uh, or, you know, and uh, you got to be smart uh, right. in, in terms of your audience. But uh, I'm just going to shift a little bit over to drugs. Um, and, and talk a little bit about um, about that topic in religion. Something, of course, uh, that when it gets brought up these days, you know, immediately people start thinking about psychedelics. But I saw that you had written an, uh, what looked like a great article that I will read on psychopharmaceuticals, or you were um, interviewed in some way on 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 pharmaceuticals uh, as um, enhancement technology. Right. Oh, that was a fun article, right. And, I, and I'm, you know, I'm real interested in drugs, you know, and, want, and, and, and writing this book on religion and drugs, and I'm, I'm, I'm not sick of psychedelics, but, again, that's where the mind goes. And one place often when you bring up religion and drugs, the, the mind doesn't go for most people is pharmaceuticals. And right. the ways in which you know we're all uh, addicted to to uh, to some prescription drug or or you know some drug or other, but certainly prescription drugs and psychoactive pharmaceutical drugs are are fair, you know are very pervasive and cross many age groups and that uh, anxious medicine you know and an anxious addiction. Uh, I'm trying to kind of look through and talk about the ways in which there are religious uh, elements and sensibilities that are tied into our notions of health uh, as, as uh, understood through the lens of great pharmaceutical companies that, that have changed so, you know, so much of our culture. Absolutely. So that was a fun paper to write. I was thinking then about, the, about how do different religious traditions, in particular Hinduism, respond to, to, to uh, drugs that enhance cognitive capacities, let's say. Um, and the overall question, I mean, the overall question really concerns how do religions think about or react to health in general, right? So if you have uh, an illness or if you have something um, that's lacking in some way that's given you a cognitive impairment, let's say, who is responsible for this and why has this happened to me, right? And in the Hindu context, things get a little bit uh, muddied because 
you could just give a simple theistic response that God wanted this way and so on. So, I mean, it's a good kind of classic problem of evil, the odyssey. But once you throw karma into this pile, then the agency is sort of, you sort of do have an agency, though it may be something that you have agency for in past lives. So subsequently, the question that follows is that if you have a cognitive impairment and you are given the opportunity to take a pharmaceutical to address that impairment, are you delaying some bad karma? Right? So you, it's because of some bad karma, some papam, that you have this impairment. And by taking this drug and alleviating this impairment, will you, uh, you of course, you, you won't have the impairment, but you won't be manifesting that papam, that bad karma anymore. So will that get delayed? Mm. Right? It doesn't get neutralized because it's something that's coming to you, right? Mm. And, and if you delay it, then it could come to you later. So it can't be cured either. It can't be cured. Or if it is cured, then you're still addressing this issue, right? So, so there are other kinds of exegetical moves that people make uh, to make it possible to take these, these um, pharmaceuticals to cure yourself or to address a cognitive uh, detriment. And the answer that's usually given is in the context of bhakti or devotion. And if you place this in the, in the context of Hinduism, is that, that one can achieve moksha, liberation from the cycle of birth and rebirth, according to some schools of Indian thought, through devotion or bhakti. And bhakti then, so to speak, trumps anything. Right? And so if you were to argue that the cognitive impairment you have is reducing or limiting the amount of bhakti that you could have, right? Then taking the drug is justified because it will make you more of a bhakta, a devotee. In the same way that you can imagine a, a situation where somebody is, let's say somebody has um, is, a, is a quadriplegic because of an accident, right? And they're unable to go to the temple then and express their devotion to their God of choice. Whereas if they took some drug that helps them walk, then they could go to the temple. And so this is an excusable modification of their karma because the goal is not simply self, you know, uh, you know uh, it's not simply for oneself, it's actually with the goal of bhakti or devotion, right? So you could think of the same thing in terms of any any pharmaceutical that enhances your beauty, let's say, right? Some, some vanity pharmaceutical, right? So getting Botox is not something that you ought to do. But then you could argue that if getting Botox makes you more charismatic and encourages more people to exhibit their bhakti to whatever God, then you might be able to get away with doing that. <laughs> so for those of you out, th out there listening, <laughs> This is one way. Yeah, to, well, yeah, <laughs> one way to get that Botox going. Get that uh, Botox, yeah. right? So, yeah. so you know, the same with regarding to neuro uh, pharmaceuticals is that you could ask this about any pharmaceutical drug, like Adderall or, or what have you, or even something as simple as uh, you know something that's going to help you sleep at night, right? So different, um, different though than cannabis. Again, within a Hindu tradition. 
right? But certainly cannabis in the Hindu tradition has been used by sadhus and by people and is affiliated and associated with God Shiva, right? So those kind of cognitive changes are permissible. Got it. Yeah. Right. If you, if you contextualize it as a Shaiva uh, enterprise or if you're a sadhu, right? Um, and well, in other words, in other words, they're they're not just cognitive changes. I mean, they they're have religious, just, you know, they're, they're sacred. They're they're a part right. of a larger uh, right. um, sense right. of, they, of spiritual right. they're, without a doubt, they're sacred. They help you achieve this state outside of language. In, in most cases, right. right, or realization that you are one with all things, a loss of the self. And so on. Right. So, so these sorts of states of mind, which are achievable through cannabis or through the DMT in the Soma land, were that was the intention, I think, right. for sure. Well, right. And and as you know, a lot of uh, the research, you know, the medical studies that are taking place around various psychedelics, continue to really just sort of focus and zero in on the mystical mysticism. That's true. And, and so, you know, uh, we, we know there's so many other uh, religious um, layers to, to these experiences than just, you know, trying to kind of wrap them all up into that one label. That is true. That is true. I, I worry that, that the, the groups that are doing this work at Hopkins and at NYU are not including enough people who work in the social sciences and the humanities or at all. And oftentimes they're just reinventing the wheel, imagining that they've come up with something that no one else has come up with before. Or they look at William James and they think that's all there is to say. Right? And so I think there's a big lacuna in, 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 in this. And I, I worry when I read Pollan's book that, that there's such a great emphasis placed on these, these um, the, the kind of guides that are trained within the medical communities, which ignores, forgets, eliminates kind of a whole history of guides that have existed in many different religious traditions throughout uh, the world, across the world, where people were able to do this independently of the medical validation, let's call it medical validation. So I worry a little bit that, sure. that, that, that something that ought to be more comprehensive is being dominated simply by a STEM approach. And I think a great deal is lost in the process. Sure. And, and not simply, you know, that those traditions or those other cultural religious practices are being ignored. It's not just that, but I, I think there's a new religious culture that's being born in these therapeutic settings now where there are guides who are ritual specialists and, I mean, you know, set and setting and thinking just again about impact of, of the experience. We, as much as we want to try to kind of keep it within a, a uh, some kind of therapeutic frame, medicinal framework, just leaving out so much, and and in terms of the impact on the individuals who are being prescribed or part of these studies and are taking it, but the larger cultural landscape, I think, is really at the moment right. being reinvigorated around new uh, sacred sources <laughs> that are right. that are certainly tied in many ways to the, the incredible. Uh, popularity and, and ways in which we talk about psychedelics as, as in a sense, miracle, miracle drugs. Miracle drug. And it's interesting, the way you phrase it, that's, that's super sharp. The way that you phrase it, too, is that these guides that are produced in places like NYU and Hopkins 
are really um, part of the pharmaceutical consuming religion culture. And and both of those, NYU and Hopkins, have gotten a ton of money from pharma. From pharma. And so you have, so you're, you have this, um, it really is much more like brave new world then. Exactly. Oh, Which we keep, right. I keep yeah, going back to hard, hard not to, but again, you have to wonder about, yeah, you know, I don't know, kind of celebrating the certain ways in which this is not so much control as ways in which, you know, people are being able to find some kind of spiritual fulfillment and meaning in new ways. Right. Wow. This is fabulous. Perhaps. Hey. <laughs> Perhaps. You're, but... We'll see. But uh, yeah, anyway, you're fabulous. And um, it's great that um, we had some time today to talk. I'm glad. I so appreciate you being here and just, again, love all the things that you, you're doing and all your engagements and projects. And um, so I know uh, we'll be talking some more uh, soon, no doubt. I hope so. Thank you so much, Gary. It's really been a tremendous pleasure and privilege. Yes. Thank thanks. You, thank okay. You. Thanks, Deepak. Thank